You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, go to simplify.us. No Simplify ETFs will be discussed in this episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today I've got my friend, Rachel Volinsky. Rachel is the CIO of Mercer Canada. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's wonderful to have you on. It's a pleasure. Rachel, you know, let's get started by talking a bit about your background. So, you know, in some ways it's unconventional because uh, because initially in university, you know, you studied criminology, you were working for the Israeli Defense Forces, and then um, and then you made that switch to finance. So could you talk a bit about your background, you know, how you got started in the industry and sort of your journey to um, joining Mercer Canada and where you are today? Well, thanks, Sri. Uh, first of all, thank you for the compliment, uh, the unconventional. I aim to be unconventional, so, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, um, my background is I was uh, in Israeli Defense Forces, and I actually, after the Israeli Defense Forces, I, I went to law school in Israel. And uh, halfway through law school, uh, my personal circumstances changed. And in my early 20s, I found myself in Canada. And um, I transitioned to uh, U of T, University of Toronto, finished my undergrad, and straight out of undergrad, went to MBA school, frankly, because I didn't know what kind of career path is uh, I am best suited for. And I figured that um, the two years will uh, give me the opportunity to uh, sort myself out, which turned out to be the right call. And while while I was in MBA school, um, and by the way, I did very well there, and everything kind of came easy to me that was related to finance. So it's more uh, gave me an opportunity to figure out where am I going to excel. And uh, throughout sort of uh, when I started out in the industry, I actually really wanted to be in private equity, but uh, when I started out 90s, Six, um, it was um, it was not an industry that was having an easy time, so I ended up uh, going into um, uh, investment banking training program for one of the uh, Canadian banks. And long story short, within two years, uh, it gave me an opportunity to observe a lot of things, and that's why I advise younger people just do sampling when you're younger to figure out what you really enjoy doing. And I migrated towards asset management. Um, so I, uh, within two years, I started my buy side career. So I kind of the clock the clock started ticking as far as I'm concerned in '98. I joined Ontario Teachers, uh, Ontario Teachers TD Asset Management. Um, then from TD Asset Management, I joined Invesco Trimark. 
And then I decided to uh, move. I moved to the States and I took a job, senior portfolio manager, head of research with Calvert Investments. It was the beginning of um, the ESG sort of uh, discovery. And it interested me a lot, uh, partially because I was so tired following uh, the Canadian market kind of heavy in resources and traditionally those have been um, kind of bad businesses and very volatile and I'm like, oh I will get to kind of ignore those for a while and um, I moved to the States spent a few years there uh, and uh, within three years came back to Canada and um, made another career transition towards more of um, supervisory sort of, uh, uh, oversight uh, initially at SCI Investments and subsequently here at Mercer Canada. And currently my job is uh, that of uh, a CIO of Canada. And as well, I'm also the global head for uh, Mercer um, equity portfolio management team. So uh, yeah, I have a lot to do at the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And you know, the fact that, you know, you're sort of running CIO, uh, you're CIO of Mercer Canada in a global health of equity, um, equity portfolio management. I think that's very, very cool. And, you know, just to get started with that, so, you know, this year has been kind of sh uh, relatively shabby for equities and, you know, considering one, you know, you're the head of one, uh, Mercer is one of the largest asset allocators in the world into, you know, you sort of the global head of equity portfolio management, you know, from a client standpoint, you know, what, you know, well, one, you know, what are clients really doing with respect to um, sort of the bloodbath that we've seen in equities? And then two, uh, you know, what, are, how are the asset allocators, Raleigh's uh, and Mercer thinking about it? Well, you're clearly spending a lot of time with the uh, doom and gloom uh, uh, people, uh, as I can hear the bloodbath, the vernacular. Um, honestly, like, um, so let's go to the beginning of the year when uh, Fed started uh, signaling uh, uh, that there's now they're going to be serious about raising rates and and QT. So. Uh, the first quarter was all about duration. So rates have gone up, uh, but the risk assets haven't been uh, that badly affected. And then Q2 came. So throughout all of this, uh, for me, as I was fundamentally trained as a value investor, a lot of it was a breath of fresh air. So yeah, do I enjoy looking at my assets and my portfolios and kind of seeing some check back not really but the the years the two years post pandemic were very unusual two years and um everything that wasn't supposed to work was working and everything that was supposed to was to work wasn't working and um someone with a fundament, very strong fundamental background and value tilt, um, even though that's not my core job at the moment, but it was frustrating insofar as 
I don't understand what's going on. You know, like all this speculation, all this, um, uh, you know, stocks that were already super expensive continue kind of to 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 go to stratosphere and um dot com mania 2.0 was in full force so i would say the 2021 for me were probably more difficult years in terms of I mean, just imagine everything you know everything you trained for just doesn't apply in fact um valuation was a liability right like if you wanted to apply any sort of traditional parameter of valuation you probably were on the losing end and you right. if you wanted to keep up you um you wanted to you you, you kind of had to compromise your beliefs and your your philosophy right mm -hmm. and so yeah, and so in a way, uh, what really happened in 2021 was we saw, um, in 2020 and 2021, was we saw a lot of these unprofitable, say, tech companies, we saw them go ballistic, go through the roof, and, you know, as you meant, and we saw them trade at ridiculous valuations, so I think the point yeah. is very interesting. So for me, 2022, as painful as it was, um, there's price discovery, there's some price discovery, like, you're getting some normalization in uh equities you're seeing some normalization in uh credit spreads you're um i mean it's very tough to make decisions when you don't have price discovery and if and if everything is expensive and you have to be fully invested as most of my clients are it's a matter of what's gonna fare better when reality will kind of when gravity sets in so um this is not a bad environment as an as an investor um do i think things will uh it's going to be a bumpy road yeah probably and as it should be <laughs> this is where professionals kind of this is an opportunity for professionals to shine mm -hmm. um uh, do I have a sort of crystal ball? I think the future is quite foggy. I mean, you, we're probably going to get a little bit into uh, what are the potential sort of pockets where black swans might come out. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I don't take the view that uh, all is sort of doom and gloom uh, from now on. Yeah, got it. Yeah, no, that's that that makes sense. And you know, one thing that we have started to see is uh, the Fed initiating QT. And do, do, you know, is your is your view that you know QT has started? Uh, uh, QT is sort of more or less priced in and into market because the broad consensus argument is that uh, QT is sort of not priced into market. And so you know, as the Fed does more QT, tightens up more liquidity, and tightens up financial conditions even further. We're likely to see equities, you know, head even lower from here. But I'm not, I'm not, you know, what's your take on that? Um, yeah. So let, let, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so um, just coincidentally, I uh, was listening to uh, another podcast by Perry Merling, and he put it in a very good perspective that if we go back to the pandemic days, we have two. We had two years of pandemic. 
an extremely loose monetary policy. And this is okay, because in a way it was war finance. So under war finance, the Federal Reserve, which is a US central bank, becomes uh, sort of the bank of the government. And what does it mean? You, uh, uh, the government needs to finance the war. In some cases, there's a physical enemy. In this case, it was uh, the pandemic. And they need to um, issue uh, funds to, to, to fight the enemy. Mm -hmm. And whatever can be absorbed by the public will get absorbed by the public. But then it's um, if, if it can be absorbed, then the government needs to step in and and uh, uh, and, and absorb the, the, the issue, the needs of, of the government. So now we're probably at the end of the pandemic, maybe, maybe not, but hopefully we are. Mm -hmm. And the Fed is correctly trying to um, pull back and sort of withdraw some of this liquidity and this loose monetary policy. And um, it's unclear. It's really unclear. So the bears, the bear case is, oh, we've never been through such environment before. Uh, the um, Fed has never attempted to fight uh, inflation and kind of uh, withdraw monetary policy uh, QT on, at, at the scale that it's attempting to do. So there's a lot of uh, uh, fodder, if you will, to, to, to scare market participants. And, and some of us uh, were very successful in doing that. Now, um, the so the bear cases, you know, and I've seen some estimates. So the Fed has to go from nine trillion to five trillion, and each trillion is uh, the impact on tightening would be twenty-five to seventy-five basis points. Thanks, that's a great range. Uh, give me lots to work with. So the truth of the matter is, no one knows really how it's going to unfold. Um, is it, are the monetary conditions going to be tighter? Probably, which is again, not a bad thing. Um, so on the other side of the, uh, this sort of, uh, again, very bearish sort of ap apocalyptic scenario, there's, there are some that say, um, yes, the Fed wants to uh, tighten, Yes, the Fed wants to fight inflation, but it's not clear whether they will be able to. And if you look at some of the indicators and clearly the uh, forward yield curve um, with expectation of how much is priced in, you ask me how much is priced in, it's kind of signaling that, you know, Yes, the Fed has the appetite and they're sounding really hawkish, but by the end of the day, they might not be able to. So um, yeah, it's, it's tough to say, it's tough to say. Listen, um, it's never easy. If it's, if it's too easy, you know that something is not right. And um, the, the, the way that I was trained and the way that I was sort of uh, uh, programmed to invest, conditioned to invest, you always 
kind of pick and choose the good companies you want to invest in for the long term, be it credit, be it alternatives, be it uh, public equities. And those companies will pr produce value over the long run through many cycles. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. And so, and so in a way, you know, when it comes to other asset classes, you know, how are you thinking through, say, uh, fixed income? Because fixed income has definitely had uh, fixed income. I, I remember reading somewhere that, you know, since George Washington, since the Declaration of Independence was signed or something, it's been the worst for six, it was the worst for six months until the end of June and uh, and all of that. And, and, you know, even today after that inflation print, you know, it's been interesting uh, watching fixed income. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on fixed income? You know, there's some people saying that, you know, over the course of the next year, we're likely to experience a recession or at least an economic soft, soft patch. And, we're likely to see inflation come down sooner rather than later. And so, you know, now might be the time to start adding some fixed income to your portfolio. Uh, you know, what, what's your take on that? You know, how are you thinking? How, how are you thinking about fixed income markets here? Yeah, so um, uh, clearly you started the year with um, overpriced everything, overpriced fixed income, overpriced. And this is what I was kind of lamenting about. Like, how do you even think about generating three, three and a half percent real return with, especially given the inflation. So clearly we started from an inopportune uh, starting point. Mm -hmm. um, at this stage, it's starting to look better. Uh, do I think there's more, uh, more sort of pain to go through for spread assets for um, uh, high yield instruments, emerging market debts, probably, probably, but it's probably also time to start taking a closer look and start uh, uh, sifting through uh, some of the opportunities. Um, so as far as uh, uh, credit is concerned, yeah, there's a little bit kind of risk appetite in me that's starting to get interested. Um, in the meanwhile, I would um, I would stay sort of um, short duration on the short end and uh, align myself with companies that uh, you know uh, they're not going to default on you. So um, you're kind of, if you're, I mean, by the end of the day, if you're not, uh, if you're getting paid, if you're getting your principal back and collecting a coupon along the way, and it's in on the shorter end of, uh, of the maturities, you should be okay. Mm -hmm. So would I recommend at this point to go gang-ho into uh, the riskier part of the market? Probably you have to exercise some caution. Uh, with respect to um, equities, were, were you going to ask me about equities now? Um, <laughs> as as a as a traditionally trained value manager, um, I'd like to think that value is going to do very well for a lengthy period of time. Um, Again, all this stuff that uh, wasn't working since we 
found herself in a uh, ever declining uh, uh, sorry ever declining uh, uh, interest rate environment um, this is tradition this is not good for value so value needs uh, inflation not like too much inflation that can be too much of a good thing and uh, value doesn't like um, uh, super low interest rates because remember a value is a shorter duration assets compared to growth right so when interest rates were declining growth assets that gr growth uh, uh, style that is, has longer duration did better than value so I'd like to think that uh, the sort of the uh, traditional value investing, discipline value investing, still has a lot of uh, legs here. Um, there's some interesting growth opportunities, and again, not all. I, and I'm I'm not talking about unprofitable growth, but profitable growth. Um, uh, we, we've seen some uh, tremendous compression and valuation, so there are opportunities. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, and and you know, with the other the other big asset that's done sort of quite well this year has been commodities, and so you know we've seen, um, we've seen we've seen various CDS strategies do okay, and we've just broadly seen the commodity complex start to trend after sort of a decade of, you know trendless uh, sort of mean reverting markets. And that's that's also been interesting to watch. And a lot of that has definitely been the function of what's going on in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And so, uh, and so you know, do you, do you have any views on commodities considering that, you know, at least for a little bit more, you know, we're likely to see some more inflation? Yeah, so uh, again, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, let's start, let's kind of, instead of focusing on commodities, Let's talk a little bit about inflation as a whole. Uh -huh. um, so we perhaps there were like few bubbles uh, since the global financial and even before that really don't have much to do with financial markets. Um, we had uh, abundance of goods and services uh, that were manufactured in China. There's abundance of cheaper labor coming from China and other uh, uh, emerging markets and cheap energy uh, flowing from Russia and cheap commodities. Um, so at the margin, it, 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 so you kind of unpack all those three conditions and they all started to pivot even before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. If you look at this whole picture of the great moderation, the, the, the period of uh, great moderation when everybody is getting along with each other and you have free flow of goods and services, you had free flow of uh, commodities. Um, some parts of the world has have given up on their own energy production and kind of uh, succumbed to um, and relied heavily upon the cheap energy from Russia. So this was all very positive for uh, risk assets, for 
fundamental sort of uh, support for valuations, for margins. And even before the pandemic, it started to change. So you saw a US relationship with China started to, um, they, it took slightly different tone. Um, the uh, abundance of labor, the labor kind of, the, 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 the labor became more expensive. Um, and obviously pandemic, and then uh, uh, the war in Russia and Ukraine, obviously affected the free flow of energy. Um, so in this regard, yes, I think it's a fairly, you can paint a fairly bullish picture for commodities uh, because first of all, you, you don't have those great moderation conditions to support kind of more efficient uh, flow of goods. Um, and and um, also uh, there's another, um, element, few elements. One is there was a lot of underinvestment in commodities. Mm -hmm. um, the, the shareholders uh, penalize, especially the energy companies. If you, if you, you probably don't remember, but I do, and I'll share with you. Um, in probably before 2014, 2013, uh, energy companies, exploration and production companies were encouraged to just produce. So every free dollar that they had at their disposal, they would plow it back into production. Mm -hmm. So they burned a lot of money and investors got very agitated. So right now you, you have a double whammy in terms of uh, investors want dividends and cash flow and return of capital. And you also have the environmental aspect. It, it's more expensive. You want companies needed to reinvest back in order to get more environmentally savvy. So, um, and on top of it, you had this whole sort of fossil fuel, kind of anti-fossil fuel attitude amongst investors. So the capital, a uh, cost of capital for them became more expensive. So if you take all of this in, in, in combination, plus you layer on the uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict, it paints a pretty bad picture for the world, you know, in that regard, but paints a pretty bullish picture for uh, energy producers. Um, in that regard, Canada is actually really well positioned. Our pipeline shortage notwithstanding, it's still the lowest, uh, one of the lowest cost producers and with abundant uh, resources uh, to, 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 to harvest years to come. So yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm, I can see that. In terms of other, you can paint a similar picture with regards to the rest of the commodity complex. Again, it was underinvested. Uh, you have, you have, it's more of the supply issue other than demand. So the supply issue is a lot more difficult to fix. And in that regard, um, again, you had disruption of flow. The commodities are not as sort of flowing as freely. It is a lot, it takes 
more money to transport uh, uh, commodities from one place to another. Mm-hmm. So again, that, that that's bullish for commodities. And obviously we can't forget the ESG and the environmental aspect and a lot of the sort of uh, clean energy uh, decarbonization is actually good for commodities. I don't remember the exact numbers, but um, you know, a, 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 uh, um, a electrical car uses more copper than an average house. So you have a lot of demand for industrial metals and uh, again, you had supply shortages because those companies underinvested. So yeah, you can you can paint a fairly bullish picture for commodities. Okay, awesome. No, I think that's it's very true. And you know, we've sort of seen uh, people talk about lithium, silver, as well, in addition to copper, as potential commodities and com- and commodity metals that are going to um, that are going to benefit uh, as a result of this transition towards ESG because in addition to EVs, if you have say solar panels, et cetera, you know, those sort of metals along with other rare earth metals are gonna be high in demand as a result of the shift towards ESG and towards, you know, greener, uh, greener energy uh, initiatives. So it's gonna be, it's, it's gonna be very, very interesting to watch and structurally, I completely agree with you on sort of the bullish case. No, one thing that's one thing that's um, been talked about a lot lately, and you know, you've sort of heard it from my boss Michael Green as well, is you get to see. Um, so you know, for example, large asset managers, say Mercer, or even bigger, say Black BlackRock and Vanguard, you know, have have had um, have have so much in assets that you know a lot of their uh, a lot of their allocations, especially within their index fund products, has been have been moving the markets. You know how far do you agree with that? And if you do agree that you know they move, move markets, you know do you do you think that's sort of a structural risk in the sense that you know flows, especially you know passive flows, end up being some sort of a risk to the market? Well, it's 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 uh, it's very interesting. It's it's very interesting to follow. It's very interesting to wrap your head around, and it's clearly uh, kind of the way I look at it. There was a trend in place, and mm-hmm. what you're describing, the indexation, kind kind of turbocharged the existing trend. Right. Um, I think we're seeing some of it in the reverse right now. When markets are selling off, you're kind of the heavier index names not necessarily doing the best. Um, it, it's really tough. It's really tough to see. Um, uh, technicals always was sort of my weakest area. I, I was trained on fundamentals of companies, but they definitely couldn't ignore it. And, and, and the fact that it's, uh, it's, it has moved the market to a large degree. There's some, you, you know, we, we I, I'm, I'm looking at um, some of the bigger sort of index providers. And um, it's interesting, like, for instance, BlackRock has been in the news a lot about ESG indices. And it's not kind of clear what they're trying to do, whether they want to start moving towards ESG indices, and then they're getting a lot of 
uh, blowback from regulators. So they're now kind of retrenching. So um, yeah, so to me, technicals is something that you need to be aware of. But but the end of the day, uh, fundamentals, in my opinion, in the long run, trump uh, 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 the technical trends. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not an expert in this field by any stretch of imagination. Um, yeah. No worries. Now, are there any trends just within the asset uh, within the asset allocator industry that you know you think it's worth for say retail and you know just say hedge funds etc to pay attention to? Yeah. So um, I mean, the biggest question I actually wrote about it not too long ago. I it, it, I tried to write a quarterly CIO letter every quarter, and um, I try not to focus on kind of just what happened, but I try to digest and understand what does it really mean. And this quarter was one that uh, was a particularly interesting quarter. And I never know how my CIO letters are going to end because I start writing and then it kind of takes me into a certain direction. And this quarter, I chose to fo focus on um, has anything materially changed? And I kind of came to a conclusion that at least it's worth kind of pausing and pondering whether something has indeed changed. And um, I, I'm not gonna say it's like changed, there was a pivotal change, but more, you know, maybe the last 14 years were a bit of an aberration. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of going back to the future in terms of um, how things were before we had this great moderation, ever declining interest rates, sort of since the financial crisis. That's kind of where my thinking is. Um, my thinking is that, um, especially the last two years, I mean, those were pretty unnerving uh things to watch um but the you know a lot of things a lot of things that we condition to take for granted for instance you know um uh, you asked about fixed income so fixed income because interest rates declined so much it became instead of being an asset kind of income producing asset it became a hedging instrument. And uh, some market participants uh, probably helped themselves too much to it as a hedging instrument. And obviously I'm not gonna criticize very successful investors, but the whole risk parity paradigm, um, you know, it's kind of a, a little bit sort of artificial, um, invention, whereas you 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 kind of try to mimic the risk return uh, of equities with fixed income uh -huh. just through leverage. So it it always had a bit of an alchemic, I hope I pronounce it correctly, uh, touch a smelt to it. So um, and 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 when you think about it, I actually came across a very interesting paper that 
if you if you look at if you look at kind of 10 year 15 year historical volatility and historical uh, volatilities by, by asset classes and you try to extrapolate it in the future you're kind of getting a little bit of a distorted picture and what do i mean by that yes if you look 10 years out fixed income securities tend to look far less volatile than for instance equities because you you have a long time to recover so volatility when you look and not just for equities all the asset classes when you look 10 years out based on the previous 10 15 years you probably underestimating the volatility and um underestimating the correlation of assets so if you kind of look at shorter horizons and this is actually one of the things that i'm trying to experiment in my world what are those volatility assumptions look like if you shortened the horizons and when you start plugging in those volatilities and those correlations all of a sudden you're uh starting to get a different picture and right. you're asking me why am i boring you with all those correlate multi-horizon volatility and correlation and in my opinion what if we go back to the future to uh the previous um uh, to the regime that we had before the the great financial uh, financial crisis you will um i think many market participants underestimated the risk i think it will have implication for risk budget mm -hmm. so what some market participants in my opinion will discover that they underestimating the amount of risk that they've taken in their portfolios and their desire to uh, achieve their journey. So I think that will be a profound change. It might not happen over time, but that, in my opinion, will have a considerable implication for uh, the next probably five to 10 years. If my thesis is indeed correct, and we're going back uh, to a regime pre sort of global financial crisis and even earlier. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the interesting points that you made was sort of this changing role in the way fixed income has behaved. So, you know, fixed income used to historically be something that, you know, you could count on as a hedge in case of recession, et cetera. And you know, it would be considered a safe asset, but you know, now uh, at least what we've seen over the last past few months is that you know fixed income has sold off quite rapidly. And and you know, you know, well, and you know, even prior to that, what we would be observed was that you know fixed income used to yield say what one percent, two percent, and the aftermath of twenty twenty was less than the ten year used to yield less than one percent. And that was interesting. And, you know, why don't you get your thoughts? Do you think, you know, the, the old idea of a 60-40 portfolio where, you know, you allocated 60% of the portfolio to equities, 40% to bonds, fixed income, you know, do you think that sort of framework of thinking about portfolio construction is dead? Well, again, I wouldn't go as far as dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, 
um, bloodbath, that. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the, I, 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 I wouldn't go as far as kind of cancel everything. Um, but I do agree that, again, we would have to revisit, revisit the way we look at diversification and revisit the way we look at risk budget. So that is for sure. Um, now, duration is, it's, 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 it's not clear cut anymore, given what I kind of described at the beginning. Yes, the Fed is tightening. Yes, the Fed is raising rates, but how far can they go? Mm -hmm. It's in many cases, the Fed tried and kind of failed. And um, it, it, it's not clear. So if we, uh, if I kind of, uh, if, if the narrative of some uh, expert, experts is correct, we're probably going to have a mild recession or I, I, I'm not going to opine on degree of mildness of, of the recession. We have recession. It's recession is all about demand destruction and demand destruction. Clearly, uh, consumer and corporates will be pulling back. And that is actually what the market is telling you, be it the uh, forward yield curve, being the forward euro dollar curve. This is what the market is telling you that, uh, yes, the Fed wants to, but it, they likely not be going to be successful. So in that regard, duration, sort of the long dated uh, interest rates have value. And um, so, so, so again, it's not clear cut. And you at this point, when rates are, I didn't see what the 10-year today, but it's probably through 325 or some such US 10-year. Um, at these levels, probably duration has some value. So you might be wise to start, and, and everybody's so negative on it. So um, that's the beauty of the hedge. Everybody, you, you need to hedge when the instrument is out of favor. Um, now, there's other implication for diversification outside of fixed income. Um, anything that had sort of the, the long volatility strategies, be it long short, being, uh, being some sort of low, long volatility strategies that are based on derivatives, um, even gold, I would lump it into the, the, the long volatility strategy bucket. So you look at this bucket and it clearly didn't work in the last 10 years, right? in the last 14 years. But again, to me, this has value right now. So if you want to diversify and uh, it's, it's actually has risk mitigation uh, properties and uh, funny enough, a lot of it's even internally, like people asking, um, you know, hedge funds, we think of them as risky as uh, obviously you have to mind the leverage, you have to mind what they're actually doing. But if it's a prudent long short strategy, this is actually a de decent risk mitigant. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, jumping to uh, equities, a little bit away from the 60-40 portfolio. Um, and actually, before I go to equity, sorry, I have so much happening in my head here. 
um, I actually want the 60-40 portfolio to stop working because honestly, it kind of put everybody to shame. Uh, diversification, like, um, you know, regional diversification, the best sort of uh, uh, portfolio uh, for the last 14 years has been indeed the 60-40 portfolio. And if you levered it, you 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 would have been way to way to the races. So um, I kind of wanted to stop working. I don't want it to die, but I, at the margin, I wanted I want to to stop working as well as it did. So all those wonderful skills that myself and my colleagues have accumulated over the course of our careers would become actually applicable again. So again, I mentioned long short strategies. Um, uh, the uh, some of the real assets, uh, as we discuss commodities, alternatives like private market assets, again, selectively um, mine the leverage, mine speculation. Obviously, experts are in best position to assess it. Um, in in jumping to equities, um, it will be interesting to see the sort of uh, one thing I will challenge is, um, and I'm challenging myself, if you look at sort of, we, we kind of conditioned to think that higher volatility, volatility strategies have to give you higher return, mm -hmm. and I kind of encourage market participants to, 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 not every risk is going to pay off. So, um, with all this sort of uh, great moderation breaking down, um, emerging markets is clearly hasn't worked in the last 10 years. It's been a very disappointing asset class. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's going to remain challenged given the, the, uh, the dynamics of emerging markets are clearly opportunities. But again, uh, I wouldn't rush to buy emerging market ETFs. I like active management in emerging markets. Um, the same with small caps. There's a lot of things that um, probably will come back into vogue. You know, our own country, Canada, uh, many market participants have given up on Canada. In Canada, uh, actually, it had very strong couple of years, uh, 21, 21, 22. Um, it's been actually very well-performing uh, 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 equity class, and um, many many have given up on Canada. And now, with this sort of newer, uh, new back to back to older but newer regime, uh, something like Canada, which is uncorrelated, not uncorrelated, but loosely correlated to uh, other developed market, given the commodities exposure of that market might be a good way to think about diversification. So uh, my, I, I kind of, in my letter, I encouraged everyone to think, think of ev everything that didn't work and why it didn't work. So, you know, something like, you know, um, Turkey didn't work. It didn't work for good reasons. So that's not a good reason to, to, to think about it as a good diversifier. But uh, there are legitimate asset classes 
maybe I'm looking at it as a contrarian investor that we really need to kind of put on our radar screens again, as I and I enumerated a bunch of them. Okay, awesome. Yeah, no, I can already visualize the title. Be like, you know, Rachel Blinsky wants sixty forty dead. <laughs> With that, Rachel, you know, I wanted to wrap up the podcast. And before I let you, before I let you go, you know, do you have any closing thoughts? And you know, could you tell the audience a bit more about where they can find uh, you, uh, Mercer Canada, and more of your work? Sure. Maybe I, I'll spend a few minutes just explaining what we do. Uh, so. Um, I'm part of a, a bigger business uh, for Mercer. It's called Investment Solutions. And what we're doing really, we're assets aggregators. And if you have a subscale uh, pension fund or insurance company or endowment and foundation, and um, again, it's subscale is in the eyes of the beholder, but we can provide a lot of services and it's a gamut of services and depending on your uh, on the client's willingness to outsource and the client's willingness to stay involved so mm -hmm. it's a gamut of services in some cases we're do it all we're doing it all we're asset allocation uh, rebalancing diversification risk management services really holding the client's hand throughout their journey. In some cases, when the client is uh, more sophisticated, typically they have more assets and they have um, boards of trustees that want to stay more involved, then it's a, a little bit uh, scaled down version of our services. But the, our value proposition is uh, we're better together than on our own. So we aggregate smaller assets together. We get scale, we get better fees, and we disseminate in an efficient manner uh, Mercer intellectual capital. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. And so, you know, you're sort of the CIO of um, the uh, of the Canadian Arm for Investment Solutions. So I think that's yeah. And if you want to find me, I'm on LinkedIn. I live on LinkedIn. I'm not an active, I don't post actively. Maybe I should, but I'd be happy if whoever wants to reach out, please do. Um, I like to think I'm quite responsive. <laughs> awesome. With that, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was wonderful having you on. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.